This podcast is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, check out our website at communitycovenant.net. Good morning. Deuteronomy 15.11 There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. And Psalm 82, 3 through 4. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. transitional lead pastor here and uh, delighted to be here. I I, uh, ran into Pastor Jeff earlier today. He and the team that went to uh, Elam are back and he says they had a great experience. Is there anybody here who was on that trip to Elam with him? Anybody? Okay, they must be sleeping in this morning. Oh, there's somebody. Okay, great. Welcome. Welcome home. How was it? Uh, Did did they... uh, the services go on forever, like when I, when I was there? Okay. You know, come to think of it, I think the reason they went on forever when I was there, because I was preaching. I preached too long. That was the reason. Anyway, uh, yes, here we are. Uh, we, are, we, are we are rounding the curve in our conversation that we've been having for the last number of weeks uh, regarding what it looks like to, to live, to lead an exponential life. And uh, we are about a week away from wrapping this up. Don't cheer. But uh, again, what, what inspires me and what prompted me to actually even think about this as a series of sermons is the fact that it's really hard to read your Bible pretty much anywhere in the Bible and not be confronted by the reality of God's desire for us to live generously. And, uh, and that, and that uh, expresses itself in a variety of ways, and you, you know that. But uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm excited about what God is doing and what will, God will continue to do among us during this time in our life together. A couple of years ago, my uh, sons and I went on a 50-mile backpacking trip in the North Cascades in the state of Washington, uh, any of you who are from the Washington State know that there's some pretty beautiful and rugged uh, uh, terrain down there, even as there is here. And uh, I, I got this idea a number of years ago that as my boys were getting older, it would be kind of a good father-son bonding experience to sort of take them into the wilderness for five or six days and kind of live uh, without showering for a week and you know, without brushing your teeth and all that kind of stuff that guys do. And, and this was kind of our first experience of doing this. And I was a little nervous. And uh, so we went with a friend of mine who's also a pastor and his son. So there was a total of five of us who were going to do this 50-mile trip starting in one location and, and landing 50 miles uh, away. And uh, I remember what my friend, uh, my hiking companion who planned the trip said to me before we started, because I, I was a little nervous about this, having not done this in a while, you know, getting older and 
probably being out of shape. And he said, ah, don't worry about it. It'll be a relatively easy hike. Uh, it, there'll be short days and long views. That, you know, that's a direct quote from my, my buddy. And I thought, that, that's good. I can, I can go with short hikes and good views. Well, what, what my friend didn't tell me was is that he didn't know how to read a map. And so um, he based his, uh, his assessment of this hike on distance rather than elevation gain. So that first day was a relatively short hike. It was about five miles. But the contour lines on the map were so close that you could hardly see anything between them, which, for those of you who don't know this, means that it's really steep. And uh, I, I pointed out to him that, you know, these lines mean something. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, that's what they are. I, I never knew what those were. So the lesson is this. Do not give over the planning of a trip to somebody who does not know how to read a map. That's all, I, that's all I'm going to say about that. Well, to add excitement to this trip, it was about uh, the two-mile mark on the very first day. Uh, my hiking companion came up to me and he said, uh, I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is, is I'm having a lot of fun with you and your boys. This is really great. Uh, he says, the bad news is, is I lost the map. I had it right here in the outside pocket of my pack. And uh, when we stopped for a drink, it was still there. And I just looked for a, mo- a moment ago and it's gone. But don't worry, he says, don't worry. I've, I've studied the map intensely and I have a mental map in my head right now as we speak. Now, I should, tell you, I should tell you this, but in about uh, a month from now, this same friend of mine with his son and my boys and I, we're going hiking on the Resurrection Pass Trail. We're going to have more than one map with us. And before I leave, I want, I'm going to ask you to diligently pray for us. Anyway, don't worry. I have the map in my head. I promise we won't get lost and uh, I was a little suspicious at this point about this, this so-called mental map that he had uh, because we were two miles in uh, and we had about 49 miles left to go. And uh, as it turned out, like, in, like many trails that I'm sure many of you have been on, there are lots of forks and trails leading in and off the trail that we were planning to travel on. And... Uh, Every time we reached a fork in the trail, we would have to stop, and he would literally stand there with his hands on his head, looking at the mental map in his head to determine whether we take a left turn or whether we take a right turn. And I I kept hearing in my head myself saying, if I wasn't a pastor, I would kill you right now. (laughs) And then the second thing I said was, You know, this is in my head. I didn't tell him out loud. I said, you should have gone back and got the map. You should have gone back and got the map. Well, during the uh, past couple weeks, as I indicated earlier, we have been journeying together and reflecting upon really what it looks like to live uh, an exponential life and and one of the things that we've been doing is we've been trying to take a look at the map. Of course, the map is the Bible, but more than that, 
the, the map also includes the context in which we live, which is a world of need. And so uh, what we've been doing over the last few weeks is we've been looking at the map, trying to discern, trying to hear, trying to listen for what God might be saying to us about our, uh, our exponential life in the world. And uh, as many of you know, we've been using a book by Richard Stearns, who is the president of World Vision, called The Hole in Our Gospel. And that is also, in a certain sense, uh, given us some direction on uh, this pursuit that we find ourselves in. Um, we have distributed 450 copies of this book. I know not all of you have started reading it yet. Don't worry. Don't feel guilty about that. There's plenty of time in, in your life to do that. Um, we have had groups of people that have talked about the, the content of this book. We have, uh, in addition to our Sunday mornings, we have had uh, four or five uh, Wednesday evenings where we watched documentary films that tried to deepen our understanding of the, of the extent of the need around us. And probably by now, you are either sick of all of this talk about becoming exponential or you're asking yourself, what should I do now? What next? For many of us, somewhere along the way, due to to uh, busyness maybe in our life or due to a distraction. Maybe, maybe you have small children that just kind of consume your life right now. Uh, maybe it's just our neglect of our own spiritual life. Uh, but we have, we have lost the map. Or at least we've set it aside and it's buried under a pile somewhere and we don't know where it is. We have lost the map that reminds us that an active life of discipleship is, is not just about public confession with our mouth. It is that, but it's not just about that. It's also about living an exponential life right where God has placed us. And uh, today it's my, my, my earnest desire, really, that, that in some small way, you might be inspired by God's Spirit to take the next step, whatever that may mean for you. It's not, it's not going to be the same step that God is prompting me to take. It's not going to be the same step that God is prompting you to take. But God's going to prompt us to the next step. Because I, I can't imagine a more significant impression that we could make on our community, on our state, on our world, than being known as a congregation, a church of people who, who are not afraid to live their lives of faith out in the world. And what I would like to ask of you is when, when and if you decide to take another, a, a next step, whatever that may be, um, I would like to hear about that. So, so send me an email, uh, brad at communitycovenant.net, so I can hear some of the stories and the, the ways in which God has led you out of this series of sermons into the uh, life, uh, an exponential life that we've talked about. For Now, for some of you, the next step is going to be uh, a commitment to finish reading the book, okay? I get that, no problem. If that's what you feel God prompting you to do, go for it. Um, uh, for some of you, the next step will be simply to commit to pray regularly where God wants to use you. 
And that seems like a simple thing, and, and, but prayer is dangerous. Um, when we pray, uh, we open ourselves up to allowing God to direct us. For some of you, your next step may involve actually rolling up your sleeves and actually participating in a ministry, either in Anchorage or something through uh, our church or something in the community. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is, this is not my sort of subtle attempt to, to manipulate you to volunteer in a ministry inside the church. I, I mean, we, we do need volunteers to do ministry, but, but I, I want you to go where God is, is prompting you. Whatever the case, I believe with all my heart that if we move from this conversation about living an exponential life without doing anything differently than we've done up until now, we are missing a prime opportunity, you and I, to serve God, the the God of the universe, who takes great joy when those who follow Him finally get it. And I don't want anybody here to miss that. I remember uh, the first time my daughter uh, learned how to ride a bike. She was uh, she didn't have the same kind of natural athletic ability as her two younger brothers. So I think they had been riding their bikes months, if not years, before she even got the courage to think about it. And uh, um, you know, I did like every parent does with a kid. You're trying to to help them learn how to ride their bike. We would go out to a parking lot and and there'd be training wheels on the bike. And she was pretty good on her bike on training wheels. And she'd zip around the parking lot. And then I suggested to her, hey, why why don't we take the training wheels off and see if we can do that without the wheels? Okay, Daddy, I, I think I'm ready for that. Okay, good. So I'm down there on my knees taking off the training wheels and and and. At first, she gets on the bike, and she's really nervous, and I can tell this. And I say, now, look, it, I'm, I'm going to hold on to your seat, and we're, you're just going to pretend like the training wheels are still there. And, uh, you know, and I, I'd walk with her a little bit and push off, and she'd pedal for a couple of pedals, and then she would realize, it was almost as if you could see it on her face, that she was alone. She, she was sinking or swimming by herself, and she'd panic, and the bike would just fall over. Well, we did this for hours and I, frankly, I was getting a little tired, and I'm thinking, oh, no, how long is this going to take? And uh, finally I said, hey, look, do you, do you want to go back on training wheels? And she kind of looked at me, and tears were coming down her eyes because she recognized that all of that attempt had, had ended up in nothing. And she said, can, can we just try it one more time? You know, and broke my heart. And I said, yeah, sure, let's do it one more time. So we we viewed again exactly what she was to do. And I put my hand on the back of her seat, and we started out slowly. And I I talked to her as as, as she took off. And then I didn't tell her, but I let go. But I continued to keep up with her and talk to her. And, and she thought I was still holding on. And I wasn't. That, that's kind of what I'm talking about. For some of us here today, we are on the verge. We are right on the, on the edge of living an exponential life, but we're afraid to take the training wheels off. We've got kind of comfortable riding our bike with our training wheels, and why change anything? 
Why, why go through the work or the challenge or the schedule readjustment when we don't have to? Well, let's take a look at a couple of passages of Scripture today. That uh, both of them are from the Old Testament, but uh, both of them have this sort of uncommon, uh, similar, I should say, a common theme that will become obvious to you in a, in a minute. First of all, we have this passage from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15. And although we just read one uh, verse this morning, uh, you need to know that this passage of Scripture is in the midst of um, an entire chapter where the writer to Deuteronomy is giving instructions to the people of God about how they should behave towards those who are indebted to them. And in fact, the whole chapter is really about this process that the Old Testament referred to as um, the year of Jubilee, where every 50 years, uh, all debts, all property went back to its original owner. And uh, the reason why they did that is because they believed that that would help equal the balance uh, from generation to generation so that you wouldn't have these cycles of poverty that went on, uh, you know, on and on and on and on. And so at the very end of this chapter, we have this verse that we read a moment ago. There will always be poor people in the land, therefore. So, so we have this statement, there will always be poor people in the land. And there's a couple of ways you can respond to that. You can say, yep, see, told you. There's always going to be poor people, so that means I'm off the hook. I don't have any responsibility for them. Or we can hear that and say, there will always be poor people in the land, so there's always going to be something for the people of God to be uh, about. And then he goes on, he says this, Therefore I command you to be open-handed, towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. I command you, the writer of Deuteronomy says, to the people of God, to be open-handed versus being closed-handed. I mean, you you get the the visual image here? This past week, our son, who uh, is a senior in high school, calls calls his mother. He doesn't call me so much. But he's, but he's got it figured out. That's the best person to call. And he, he's getting ready to go to his senior prom. And I don't remember proms costing as much as when I went to the proms as they do now. But, you know, he wants a tuxedo and he needs to get uh, his date a corsage. And, uh, and then he sends us a quick little note and says, hey, it's going to cost us 75 bucks to rent a limousine. I'm going, What? Ride your bike. What are you talking about? He doesn't actually have a bike. Uh, and, and then, and then, and then he, he, he texts his mother and he says, Hey, can I go with a few friends and get a straight, uh, straight razor uh, shave? And we drew the line on that. We said, No way. That's, you're not doing that. Anyway, um, where, where was I? Oh, about being open-handed. I think when you have children, that it, uh, they provide us with a wonderful lesson of what the, uh, the writer of Deuteronomy is trying to say to us this morning about being open-handed. Because those of us who are parents, and I'm not to the end of it yet, um, it, it is a perpetual practice of being open-handed, isn't it? And I think that's what the writer of Deuteronomy is saying to the people of God about how they interact 
with those people who are in need around them. And then we, we look quickly at Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4, and it, and it has four, I'm calling this the R-D, der, and then deliver them from the hand of the wicked, D, the der text. See, see where I got that? See, from the very earliest moments in the biblical story, uh, we are given a glimpse of the heart of God for the poor and the needy around us. And if we had time this morning, we could look at hundreds of passages throughout the entire Bible that speak to this, and we don't have time to do it. Uh, but in view of our limited time, let me just say, say this, that these two texts, if we believe them, and respond to them the way I think God wants us to respond can absolutely turn our lives upside down. From being people who live our lives with clenched fists and holding on to everything we got to being people who live our lives with open hands. You don't even have to be a Christian for that matter to be able to, to, to have a disposition that is open, a posture towards people in need. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why we, we aren't, we're, we're afraid of people in need because they might take advantage of us or we're afraid that we might become people like that if we part with too much of our stuff. You know, I know, I know all the fears. But I think the key to understanding what this open-handed spirituality actually looks like in practice is that it's not just something that we talk about, that we think about, and we go, oh yeah, the Bible tells us we should live this way, but I haven't gotten around to it quite yet. Um, what really is the point is that this is a, this is a posture. This, this open-handed spirituality is, is a disposition that we bring into our lives wherever we go. And I think both the psalm that we looked at and the, and the, and the Deuteronomy text that we looked at uh, is trying to suggest the same thing. So it doesn't really matter whether you're young or old, whether you've been a person of faith for a long time or a person of no faith, um, the challenge to lead an open-handed, generous life isn't easy, but it's something that we can manage just by practicing. Uh, we must fight against, and, and I'm speaking to myself at this moment as much as you, we must fight against the inertia uh, that we sometimes live in that, that settles us down into our, our, our favorite seat in front of the television, and that's all we do. Even when it's dark a lot of the time, we, we have to fight against that. We must confront the lie that we tell ourselves sometimes that we can't live a life of open-handed generosity until we get to that, that next raise. Until we pay off this debt or that debt. Until we get back from our vacation and know exactly how much money we have to pay off on our credit card. You see, I've been through the same rationalization as you have, haven't I? See, all of that stuff's not true. We can begin to lead a life of open-hearted generosity immediately, right now, from the moment we leave this place. I, I was uh, astounded this past week. I read a book that somebody had loaned me called Kisses for Katie. And this was a 16-year-old girl, or 17, she was a teen, and she decided 
somewhere in her high school career that she was going to start taking uh, her Jesus followership more seriously than she's, she'd ever taken it before. So she decided she was going to go on a short-term mission trip to Uganda, Africa, Africa and uh, do that for a week. But what she really wanted to do was she wanted to spend her life uh, her first year out of high school, serving in Uganda. So when she went to tell her parents, hey, look, it, I want to go uh, uh, to live in Uganda next year, they, like us, said, you know, no, no, you don't want to do that. You know, you want to get a college degree first. You want to kind of establish yourself. Maybe you want to have a family. Then you want to decide. And, and this girl was resolute. God had called her. God had spoken to her. And so as a compromise, she goes, well, how about if I just go for a week? She went for a week and nothing changed. And she ended up moving to Uganda, this 16 or 17-year-old girl. And she got there and she was confronted with need like she'd never seen before in her life, kind of like some of the need that we heard about in, in the Congo. And she didn't know anything better than to begin to, to, to try to help everybody that, that confronted her with need. And before she knew it, she had uh, 14 orphans that she had adopted. And, and, and in addition to that, she had started an organization and she was caring for and providing fees for school for 250 children in this particular village. And this is what she said toward the end of her book, and it, it's startling. And she's 22 now, but she's still living in a village somewhere in Uganda. And she said this, I believe there is only one truly courageous thing we can do with our lives. To love unconditionally. <laughs> Can you imagine that kind of wisdom coming from the mouth of a 22-year-old? So it leads us to the question, what can one person do? What, what can I really do that, that matters? When, when we see all the depth of the need around us, really, is my little, little stone in this pond going to make any difference at all? And I refer you here to probably one of the most well-known uh, uh, spiritual persons who took the, the, the call of Jesus seriously, Mother Teresa. When she was asked uh, how she was able to remain so optimistic with so much misery around her, she said this, I focus on one person at a time. I like the African proverb that addresses this issue directly. If you think you are too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. You see, for, for the author of Deuteronomy, for the psalmist, the solution to a life of, of small-minded stinginess is a life of open-handed generosity. It's not enough to acknowledge that the world in which we live is a needy place. Everybody can see that. Everybody knows that already. It's not enough to make excuses, really, why we can't do anything about it because of God's generosity to us to begin with. We must become open-handedly generous in our relationships with others. To do otherwise is to twist the gospel. Hear me. Is to twist the gospel and to distort the image of God.
And then the psalmist goes on and he talks about these, these four words, the dirt that I, I mentioned a minute ago. Defend, uphold, rescue, and deliver. These are active verbs. These are not verbs that you sit around and, you know, eat comfort food by as you're thinking about them. These verbs get you off your chair doing something. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold, rescue, deliver. You see, the solution to fixing, as Richard Stearns would say, the hole in our gospel, the key to living an exponential life, is to move from acknowledging, merely acknowledging the presence of need, and actually doing something about it, like defending the weak, who we run into all the time. I took my boys to a baseball game a number of years ago at Jacobs Field in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, we were uh, walking back from the end of the game. They, they played the Boston Red Sox. And it was really fun because we, they, my kids at the time loved the Boston Red Sox. So we drove two hours to Cleveland. And I'm, I'm taking way more time on this than I should. And uh, we're, we're sitting, we found ourselves sitting in a section of the, uh, of the field where all kinds of Cleveland fans were. And we're there cheering for the Buff, uh, Buffalo, the Boston Red Sox. And I lean over to the guy next to me who's wearing a Cleveland jersey and a hat. And I go, so who are the Boston Red Sox playing today? Get that? Anyway, so we're walking home from this game. And there was kind of a drunken fellow that was harassing people uh, up ahead. And I saw that. And I had two little boys, one on this arm and one on this arm. And... Uh, and I could feel the one on this arm, the one closest to this uh, fellow who was harassing fans. Um, I could feel his, his grip getting a little tighter. And so I just sort of gently um, moved his hand over to this hand, and I stepped in between him and this fellow. So if there was any harassing that went on in this particular instance, he was going to have to harass me first. That's what the psalmist is talking about when he says, defend the weak. And then he goes on to say, uphold the cause of the poor. Uphold the cause of the poor. Keep it in the forefront of your mind. Keep it, keep it out there so people know that just because it's no longer in the headlines, there's still people that have need. I have a friend that works for World Vision who tells me that year after year it gets harder and harder for organizations like World Vision to, to actually capture our attention because there is so much saturation of the need in the world that we begin to not pay attention. And the psalmist is saying it is the people of God's job to keep upholding the needs of these people. It's our job to remind our community that just because the news has slipped off the front page, it doesn't mean that the, that the, that the need has gone away. That's our job. The next step to living an exponential life, according to the psalmist, is to rescue the weak and the needy. And what fascinates me about this is this last week or two, there's a small community in Moore, Oklahoma, that was devastated by the most powerful tornado that has ever been measured. And I don't know how they measure tornadoes. Somebody who comes from the Midwest who can, can tell me that, but... It's amazing to me in this particular instance how few people actually died in the midst of the sort of the destruction that that tornado left in its wake. And like every catastrophe that I watch on the news, 
I am always amazed by and inspired by the stories of, of heroism that come out of these events. People don't wait for the official first responders to show up. Some people just get in their cars and they drive hundreds of miles and they're there picking through the rubble trying to save lives. This is what an exponential life looks like. The the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, we are called to be the first responders to people in need. And then finally, the psalmist continues by calling us not just to rescue the needy, but to deliver them from evil people and evil structures. You see, uh, sometimes we think that people are poor because they're lazy or it's their fault or, you know, they won't get a job or whatever. That's rarely the case. Most of the time, people are poor because they have been trapped in a cycle of poverty. They are, they are put down by a structure that does not allow them to get out of their poverty. Did you know that all of the money that the U.S. raises through organizations like World Vision, World Relief, uh, you know, name your favorite charity, um, all of that money put together does not even come close to the amount of money that the United States government gives away in humanitarian aid around the world. And and the reason I tell you that is because I I don't want to discourage you from being generous with your money, but uh, some of you, or maybe even one of you, might feel called to call up your senator or your representative and say, hey, you know what, I'm really uh, in favor of the United States being supportive of this particular bill for these reasons. That's another way in which God is calling us to, to defend, to, uh, to uphold, and to care for those who are poor around us. So here's the challenge. The challenge is what steps will you take to begin to lead an open-handed and generous life? What will you give up so that you can make room in your schedule to serve someone with no vested, uh, no vested interests, that you'll get anything in return. What will you do? This is not a hypothetical question. Now, I know that I'm just the transitional pastor, and that may be reason enough for some of you to say to yourself, This has been a nice sermon series, but I'm going to wait until the next pastor comes and see what he has to say about this topic. If that's how you want to respond to to my question today, you're welcome to do that. The challenge that I want to put before you and I put before myself is that if we leave here today without making a commitment to do something, you never guess what's going to happen. Nothing. We're going, to, we're going to get right back in that groove that we slided in here with. If you need to get out and get involved in a ministry, I want to encourage you to track down our pastor of mission, Erica Whittington, and say, look, I want to help out. What are some of the organizations that we partner with that I could be part of? This is a matter of spiritual life and death, folks. 
It's a matter of spiritual life and death, not only for those who could be recipients of our, of our ministry, but also for us. Will you accept this challenge? Will you allow God to change your heart just this once? Will you, will you set aside your preconceived ideas about the poor and your responsibility toward them long enough to roll up your sleeves and actually do something for once? Let me go back for a minute to the story about losing the map. On the third day of our hiking trip, our group, my boys and I, got separated from my hiking companion and his son because they wanted to take some side trail and go fishing, some crazy thing like that. And so we decided after being eaten alive by mosquitoes for a couple hours, we were just going to march on. And uh, as we trudged towards the next camp, we had kind of a general idea. Remember, he had his mental map, but I left him behind. Um, um, Every time we reached a fork in the road, my boys and I would stop and we would put stone on stone on stone with sticks, with arrows pointing in the trail that we took. But there were a couple of places it was still a little dicey. It would have been easy for him to miss us. And so when we arrived at our camp later that evening, I was frankly in my mind beginning to think, I haven't been backpacking in years, and I'm with my two boys that have never backpacked before, and we just lost the guy who had the mental map. And I was beginning to get worried because I didn't have confidence uh, of whether or not we were going to see him again. So we pitched the tent and we gathered firewood and we got ready to have dinner. And I had one of my boys stand on the, a bluff. We, we found a camp spot in this beautiful cirque at about um, 10,000 feet in the North Cascades. And uh, they looked over the, the, the valley looking for our companions to come. And about two hours later, they come rambling up the trail. And as we're sitting around the campfire later that night, um, my, my friend... Um, said that uh, they knew where to find us because they had run into uh, an older man with a graying goatee and his two adult sons who said um, they gave us the impression that they were going to go camp at the Star Lake campsite. And at that moment, I started to laugh. And I said, what are you talking about? An older man with a, with a graying goatee and his two adult sons. We haven't seen anybody on this trail for over two days. Older man, graying goatee, two adult sons. I, I don't know who they were. I, I don't know how... He knew this goateed father and his two sons were going to settle up on that campground in the the basin of, of that mountain. But I do know this, because we didn't go back for the map, and because we became separated from our hiking companions, these three people mysteriously entered into our lives and gave direction exactly where we were heading. Now, I don't know if those hikers were angels or real people, but whoever they were, they came along at a critical moment to help us reorient our lives to a good end. And this is what I have been trying to do with this series of sermons about exponential living. Friends, we have been given a map 
for the journey. We have been studying it in some detail, and this map has pointed out to us that if we want to live an exponential life, then we must begin to allow our hearts to be broken by the same things that break the heart of God. Now is the time. Now is the time. Now is the time to do something about it. Let's pray together.